You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I want to say just a special word of thank you to Miss Jamie and Miss Hannah and to all of those who were. This was a great week. Uh, this place was filled with children uh, from morning until noon. And uh, just remind everybody, don't forget that in a couple of weeks we have, um, that's it, that's right. Uh, that's coming up. Um, what is it? Windshape. So that's coming up. Please, we need helpers and workers with that. We saw so many children make decisions this week, and uh, I'll probably say something about a couple of them in just just a minute. I'm glad to have my best friend with me today and his wife, uh, Rick and Nancy Burt. He just retired. I preached his retirement last year. He's old. old he is old. So old. He was my Sunday school teacher when I was in seminary, and uh, he's retired. I have not. Um, he's a lot wealthier than I am. Anyway, let me just share with you, as soon as I preach the second service, I am leaving for the convention. Uh, I'll have to get Barry to come and do the invitation. I'm to host the pastors that are preaching tonight, so I'm hoping that I'm going to get there uh, before they get in the pulpit and start preaching. Uh, so pray for our travel. Pray for the convention. I'm going to invite you to do that at the end of this service to come and pray. This is the most tenuous convention in my, you know, 135 years of being a Southern Baptist. And um, we really need prayer. Uh, the convention needs prayer. So take your copy of God's Word and let's look at it. Go to Exodus chapter 24. You know, when God created man, he created man with the desire to know God. Um, you, you see in Genesis chapter two, God comes down and in the cool of the day, he walks the garden with Adam and Eve and evidently Adam and Eve waited for that time of day every single day when they could be with the Lord, when they could know him intimately. Um, you see this all through history, man's search it comes out in so many different ways. And I realize that we're told no man uh, searches for God. Uh, that's a little different context. Every man has some kind of hunger to know God, some desire to know God. And it comes out in so many different ways. And uh, you hear it all through Scripture. David in Psalm uh, 49 comes and he says this, 42, and he says this, he comes and he says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul, my heart, my life pants for you. Paul comes in Philippians chapter 3 and he says, but whatever things were gained to me, I've counted all that as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he comes and he says that I may know him and, um, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
and to be conformed to his death. Paul even says, listen, to know him, to even be conformed to his death. I want to know everything. There is a hunger for an intimacy with God. Augustine of Hippo Regis said, our souls are restless until they find rest in thee. Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician and uh, philosopher and somewhat theologian, says there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled, listen to what Pascal said, it can only be filled by God made known through Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear. I think Solomon really sums it up best in Ecclesiastes 3 when he says he has placed eternity in our hearts. That is, when God created man, he put into man this hunger to know his creator, this drive, this desire to know him. And when you come to Exodus chapter 24, the entire chapter to me is about this very thing. Now, I'm going to look at this because we've, we've just covered the law. We've gone through the law. Uh, we've gone through what is called the book of the covenant here. And I'll get to that in just a second. But we've gone through all of this law. And so now God comes and he's going to speak about coming up unto the Lord. That's going to be throughout this chapter. Two major places. That's what he calls for, come up unto the Lord. King James says, come up to the Lord. It is climb higher and draw nearer to me. Now listen, God has always desired the lost to come to him and the saved to draw even nearer. Now that's where you are in chapter 24. He's already called through the law. You know, if you go back to chapter uh, 20. 20, 22, 21, 22, and then you get into chapter 21 and 23 and 24. There's this calling, come to me, come to me. Those that are lost, you come to me. There's an altar that is here. There's a sacrifice that is made for you. And now he's calling those of us that know him, as you'll see this in the life of Moses, I want you to draw nearer to me. Now, how can you have a closer, intimate relationship with God. As you see, look at the very first verse of chapter 24. It's it's what he's calling for here to Moses when he comes to him and he says this. He opens the chapter in this way. He said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are the two sons of Aaron, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Now, I go back, I say this, not every week, but close to it, that you can write over Exodus, not just an Exodus from Egypt, but an entrance into worship. That's what God is continuously calling us to do. That's what he calls them to do there. Come up on the mountain, come to me, and come here to worship, the word is to Moses, and, and look at that. Listen, I can take that first verse and just spend the day on it. What is he saying there? You come to me. Don't come alone. When you come to Jesus Christ, don't come alone. You're to bring folks with you when you come to him. That's what God is saying here to Moses. Moses, when you come, you come on up, and don't come by yourself. 
Bring some people with you when you come. Bring some people with you when you come to church. Bring some people with you when you come to Jesus Christ. That is, go and share Jesus Christ. And the thing is this, that's one of our five major values at this church. Are you sharing Jesus daily? It's one of our values. Don't go to heaven by yourself. Bring somebody with you. Bring somebody that you've shared with. So he's calling him there, and he's calling him up to have an intimate relationship with him, as you see throughout this chapter. And the question is, how do we have a more intimate relationship with God? Well, let me just give you a couple of things this morning. Number one, intimacy with God means coming to God on God's terms. Now, I'm going to start in verse 7. I'm going to pick it up in the middle of this, then I'm going to go back to the first part. And then I'll get to the last part, perhaps. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant, that's Moses, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has done, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, look back up to verse 6. That's the center of it, but in verse 6, he has made an altar, He's offered sacrifices on that altar. He has caught part of the blood of these sacrifices in a bowl that he is going to sprinkle on that altar. And then he's going to take the rest of the blood, verse 8, and he sprinkles it on the people. And he says, behold the blood of the covenant. Now, let me just stop and talk to you about a covenant for just a moment. Uh, beginning in chapter twenty. Verse 22, you start the covenant through chapter 23. This is all this law. I, I gave you that the other day. There's the moral law that you get in chapter 20. There is the ceremonial law that you're going to get, and you're going to get more of it in Leviticus. Uh, and then there is the civil law that God gives to his people. All of that's kind of interwoven in one with the other. He's establishing a nation. And he's also establishing a way these people are to worship him. That's the ceremonial law. And he's establishing, you know, not just civil law, how do you run a country, how do you run a state, but he's giving them moral law, this is how you live. Now, God gives them all of that, and they enter into this covenant. You see there, verse 7, the book of the covenant, and a covenant involves a number of steps. The first step is the preamble. In the preamble of a covenant, you have the sovereign identifying himself, and then you have him telling the people what he's done for them. That's exactly what he does back in chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God. He identifies himself. I am Jehovah your Elohim. I am Yahweh your Elohim. Now look, this is what I've done. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now that's the first part of a covenant. The second part of a covenant is where he gives the requirements. This is what is required. You shall have no other gods before me. So it begins the requirements of the covenant. Now, that's going to play big in about 40 days. We'll see that next Sunday, Lord willing. If I make it out of New Orleans alive, I will be in 32nd chapter of Exodus next Sunday. And you'll see that. That will play very prominently. That is the first requirement. You shall have no other gods before me. 
So just hold on to that the next week. So he gives the requirements. The third part then comes to the blessings. These are the blessings that will be yours when you're obedient to the covenant. But if you're disobedient, here's the wrath. Here's the judgment. Here's the hand of God. Here is what the Old Testament calls the curses that will come to you if you are not obedient to the covenant. And then there is that moment when they are sprinkled with blood. Now, just as I have led you to think about, they're going to break this covenant within 40 days. And yet, out of the goodness of God, he has already made a way for that uh, sin to be covered by blood. What do you call that? Grace. Grace. He's already made a way for their sin to be covered by the blood of a sacrifice. Moses builds an altar He sends these young men with the sacrifices. They sacrifice that. He catches some of that blood and he sprinkles it on the altar. And then he turns around, which is to basically say, this is holy. And then he turns around and he sprinkles the rest of that on the people. And that is a way of saying, this is the way God will deal with your sins. That the sacrifice on that altar is there in place of you. In all honesty, you should be placed on the altar and sacrificed because you've broken the covenant of God. You have sinned against God. You have, you have done what you said you would not do. I would not sin. And you have not done what you said you would do, and that is be obedient to God. But instead of you going to that altar, God has placed an animal on that altar, and he takes that blood, and he sprinkles that blood on you, which is to say you are now clean. Now, that's God's doing. Does it sound vaguely familiar to anything you know? Yes, that on another altar, a cross, hanging between earth and heaven is God's perfect lamb who sheds his blood. I should have been on that cross. You should have been on that cross. We should have been on that cross. And yet God in his grace and mercy and love and goodness, all of these superlatives, because of that, he put his son on the cross so that we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and our sins are forgiven. They're moved away, they're done away, and we can stand before him as clean sons and daughters. That, That is the way God says, you will approach me. You can't come to God any other way. There's not another possible way in the entire world that you can come to God except through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you here are struggling and wrestling with that today. You know, I had a, one of our little girls walk out the door. It may have been Friday. No, coming into the coming into Vacation Bible School Friday. And and she told me, she said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ last night. 
I said, oh, did you really tell me about that? And so she shared with me about that, and I suspect that she'll probably come in one of the services today and give her life to Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity to talk to a man this past Wednesday. He's going to come, I think, and make a public profession of faith as well. And then I got a note from uh, one of our young dads who's got three young boys, and he just wrote me, I think, out of just joy and said, uh, my middle boy tonight has given his life to Jesus Christ. So we've seen a week of people coming to We've seen a harvest this week of people coming to Jesus Christ. We're going to baptize two people in the next service. You realize we're getting to where we're baptizing two people about every Sunday now? I, what I want to do is I want to baptize about a dozen in both services every Sunday. That, then I'll, maybe I'll be satisfied at that. Until we reach that point, then I want more. Well, I'm never going to be satisfied with ever how many we baptize. I'm going to always want more. Well, that's what God says here. He says, this is the way you approach me. You can't approach God any way you jolly well want to. And the world thinks that we can. It is impossible to come before God without the shedding of blood, the writer of Hebrews says. There is no remission of sin. And sin will not come into the presence of a holy God. So you begin intimacy by coming to God in that way. If you want to come to Jesus Christ this morning, I invite you to come to Jesus Christ this morning, and I'm going to tell you, you'll never get to God the Father any other way but that way. Now let me show you the second thing, and the second thing is this. The second thing is how our intimacy with God means making God a priority. He is to be our priority in all of this. Let me get back over here to verse 1. Then he said to Moses, come up unto the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Now, I'm going to show you something here in this that has caught my attention as I'm going to read on a little more. And I don't want to make more out of it than is here, but I certainly see it in the text. So watch now at what happens. God's called him to come up. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. He says, they can only come so far, Moses, but I want you to come on up to the Lord. So what does Moses do? Moses then gets up and he goes to the Lord. No, no, no. No, no, it says, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinance. And all the people answered with one voice and all the words which the Lord had spoken, we will do. So instead of going up right then to the Lord, now he does something else. He gets the ordinances of the Lord. He takes the word of the Lord and he goes and he preaches to the people. Now, I'm going to follow this through, but let me tell you something. Here's where we are. Tragically and sadly, we so often get more caught up in the ministry of God and its priority that we do not make the God of ministry the priority. Now, I'm going to confess to you, right here in front of my wife, my best friends, elders, deacons, and all of the rest, that is a struggle in my life. That is struggling my life. Now, I'm confessing my sin. I'm going to look for y'all to confess yours in a minute. Now, that is a struggle in my life. There are some times that I so make ministry a priority that God is no longer the priority. 
I get caught up in doing all kind of church stuff and all kind of convention stuff and all kind of preaching stuff that so often in my life I have to stop and say, this is wrong, I've got my priorities out of order and God is the priority and not the ministry. So Moses, after he read all the words to the people, did what? He, he went up to the mountain. No, he didn't. Verse 4, Moses wrote down. Now he goes in and he sits down and he's going to write all this down. And by the way, let me just throw this in. This is one of the clearest pictures of how you get Scripture that you'll find in the Word of God. And you go through that whole, you know, Wellhausian hypothesis documented theory that is a bunch of... And, um, you, you know, it's already been disregarded that all of these other people, what does the word say? It's, it did, Mo, Moses didn't write Genesis. He didn't write Exodus. He didn't write all the, It just says in the Bible, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and I'm just crazy enough to believe it. Because when I read something like that and anything else, I always take it as fact. So I'm going to take it as fact here. Then he arose early in the morning, and he built an altar. He didn't go up to the mountain. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He's dancing around the foot of the mountain when God has said, come up to the Lord. Good things. Building an altar is a good thing. And when he gets through with the altar, what's he going to do? Well, let's build 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Then what's he going to do? Now let's sacrifice. So he sent the men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and they sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Then he went up to the mountain. No, he took half the blood and he put it in basins. The other half he sprinkled on the altar and he took the book of the covenant. Now watch this. Now he stops in the middle of that and he takes the book of the covenant and now he's gonna read it to the people. And they all said again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. They go even a step further than what they've said before. So Moses takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people and he said, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up. You, you begin to get a pattern in the life of Moses. That in the life of Moses, you remember back in Exodus chapter three where um, Moses... Moses um, had every excuse. You know, the Lord says, hey, call to him out of the burning bush. Hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses, I can't do that. It's better to do somebody else. Use somebody. I can't go because of this. I can't go because. And it just argues over a couple of chapters there until God just finally gets mad at him and, um, and really puts the law down on him. And he says, I'm telling you to go. I've made all these accommodations for you. And so here's Moses again. And God calls him to come up to the mountain, and, God's, and Moses has got all these other good things to do. They're not bad things. I mean, he's not living in sin. He's not going off into sin here, but neither is he doing, neither has he made God the priority in all of this. Do you see that? Okay, well, you don't see it. So look, take your Bible. Put your finger there in Exodus and go with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is packed out. He's going to send the 12 out. He's going to give them authority. They're going to go out. They're going to preach. Herod's going to hear about Jesus and think that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. There's going to be the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus is going to be transfigured. 
Then the disciples are going to get in an argument about who's the greatest, uh, you know, of all of them, which one of these apostles happens to be the greatest. Then you're going to get to the end of chapter 9 of Luke, and there are three incidences with possible disciples. Now just watch this. Verse 57. Luke chapter 9, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said, I want you to understand something. Uh, we don't stay down at the Marriott every night. We're, we're not even down at Motel 6. We're, we're out we don't have great accommodations. Uh, we're out in the elements. Um, it, it's difficult. It's not easy. They're not putting us up at the Hilton. Um, they aren't doing anything. This is what it means to be a disciple. I think Jesus said that because he knew this guy's priorities were other than making him the priority of life. I know a lot of people that go in ministry uh, for that reason. Uh, they go into it because I want to tell you something. You can be a lazy bum and be a pastor uh, today. Do as little as you have to do, as little as you have to do and get paid for it. And, and, and in doing that, it's for certain that the kingdom of God is not your priority. Now, y'all look at me like I'm crazy or something. I just said what y'all say when y'all go out to dinner. Y'all talk about preachers. Well, now listen, here, here comes another. Here's the next one right behind it. Verse 59, and he said to another, follow me. Jesus now says this, and he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus says, well, go ahead. You know, you'd be better off, let the dead bury the dead. You go out and tell everybody about the kingdom of God, but you go ahead. That's your priority. I'm not your priority. It's clear to see. There's a third, verse 61. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those that are home. And Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Essentially what Jesus said there was, I'm not your priority. Here are all these people with all these different priorities coming up saying, I want to follow you, I want to be a disciple, I want to go with you, but I've got to go do this and I need to do that and this is what I think it's all about over here. And Jesus says, listen, until I am the priority of your life, you're not following me. And so I go back to this in chapter 24 of Exodus. What was the priority of Moses it was all these other things. Listen, we get this way in the church. Well, I'm sincere. I really do want to follow the Lord. I really do want to be a disciple. But we got to get this budget thing straightened out first. Or, or I've got to get my marriage straightened out first. The best thing you can do is get to Jesus as fast as you can. I've got to get this situation with somebody else straightened out first. We've got to get these things over here straightened out first. And we make everything in the kingdom of God a priority except God. And if you want intimacy with God, now here comes the third thing I want you to see. It is this. The third thing in the intimacy of God is that you're going to have to be willing to climb up higher. He's going to come back to Moses. 
And he's going to say to Moses, now come up to the mountain and uh, remain there with me. He's going to call him to come to the mountain. Now this is the, this is the fascinating part of this story to me. And it's what they did. Moses went. They, they went up with Aaron. Verse 9, Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Now, one last thing that I give you about a covenant is the covenant meal. Uh, they would always, at the end of making a covenant, sit down and eat a meal, and it was always understood to be, I am eating this meal in fellowship with the sovereign God. That's what they would do when they would go to the temple, and they would take sacrifices. There were some sacrifices they would make that a portion of the meat would be given back to them, and they would take that, and they would go sit down, and they would eat that meal, and it was understood they're eating the meal in the presence of God. This is a fellowship meal with God. So that's what happens here. Moses, Aaron, his two sons, the 70 elders, they go and they sit down to have a meal. And after making the covenant with God, and they saw God. Do you see this in verse 10? And they saw the God of Israel. Ra'ah is the word in the Hebrew. It means to see, to look, to perceive. It really means to gaze on. To just kind of look at and gaze on. You study it. You look at it. Now, I realize that over in chapter 33 and verse 20, that God says to Moses, no man can see. Let's, in fact, do this. Just look over to, let me read it to you. Out of chapter 33 and verse 20, God says this. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And you say, but now wait a minute, pastor. It says here that they saw him. Well, you have to read and understand what they saw. I don't have to see the whole of my wife. All I got to do is look for a pair of shoes, and I can tell you whether or not it's my wife or not. They saw his feet. That's what they saw. It tells us that. And under his feet, they looked up, they saw the feet of God, and there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Now, let me show you something else. If you've got your Bibles, look over to Ezekiel chapter 1 because Ezekiel saw the same thing. And it's interesting, the color was basically the same. This is going to be the color of sapphire. Over here, it's going to be the color of lapis lazuli, which was blue as well. In Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Now over the head of the living beings, these were angels of some kind, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystals spread out over their heads. Verse 26, Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance, that's a blue stone or a blue color, and on that which resembled a throne. He says on that pavement, that blue pavement, there was a throne, and now way up above that throne, there was this appearance, and it resembled something like the figure of a man, the appearance of a man. And I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire. That's all he could see was this molten fire 
all around it and from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. That's the Shekinah glory of God. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a sunny day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. See, I told you, this is the glory of God, what he's seeing. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. So here they are, they are there at this dinner and they look up and, and through this sapphire stone, that is pavement. Can you imagine pavement being made out of sapphire? The color of sapphire, if you want an expensive sapphire, it's not light blue because it doesn't capture the, the, the deepness of, of a sapphire and it's not very deep blue because it doesn't allow the light to come through. It's a medium darkness that allows some of the radiance. Now here it is, this, this dark, this medium dark sapphire pavement, and yet it allows the glory of God to shine through to the point to where they can look up and they see the feet of Almighty God. Moses saw the back of God. Here they see the feet of God. And they see that because that dark sapphire is illuminated by the light, by the glory of God. Hey, let me just stop for a minute. Look, this is the early service. You hadn't got anywhere to go. I want to tell you, you know what I thought this week? Everything that comes into contact with the glory of God is transformed. You can watch it through Scripture. Paul's going to tell you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You one day are going to be called out of your grave if Jesus doesn't come back before we die. And when you come out, and even if when we go up, we're going to be transformed in the twinkling. Paul says, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, we're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to become, this mortal is going to become immortal. This corruptible nature is going to become incorruptible. You're going to be transformed into something we have never seen before. Y'all just sit there now, okay? That's what... But now watch this. You take an element like sapphire and it comes into contact with the glory of God. It is still sapphire, but it is transformed so that that deep blue glows with the radiance of the glory of God. Everything that comes into You and I cannot begin to imagine the scale of music, the spectrum of color, what things are going to look like that we have never even thought about before when we get caught up into the glory of God. Well, that's what happens here. That's what they see. This sapphire becomes radiated by the glory of God and they see the feet of God right there and the hand of God does not touch them. They're not, they're not killed because they've not seen his face. Now the Lord said, verse 12, to Moses, you come up to me. Now I want to get to what I want to share with you. On the mountain and remain there. I'm going to give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. So Moses arose. This time he's going to move out immediately. They evidently had gone up 
to some plateau on that mountain, and there the elders and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and Moses and Joshua are there. And then God calls him, no, I want you to come on up a little higher. I want you to climb a little higher and come a little nearer to me. And so he's going to go up now with Joshua. Moses arose with Joshua's servant. Moses went up on the mountain. He's going to turn to the elders and he said, you, you wait here for us until I return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. And then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And the eyes of the sons of Israel appeared uh, the, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like consuming fire. And Moses, he leaves Joshua now, and he goes on up. God calls him yet again, and he goes on up into the cloud. And that cloud around the top of that mountain is representative of the glory of God. And Moses enters on up into God's glory. I, wonder what, I just wonder what that's like. Do you not long for that? I, I, you know, I don't, I do, I do as well. I long to know what was it like to be that close to the presence of God. To where it could be said, I was lost and unseen in the glory of God. Intimacy. Now I want to show you one last thing and it's this. In chapter 33, Moses is going to pray. Now, just listen to this. He's going to pray. In verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Let me tell you something. Once you get a taste of the glory of God, you're going to want some more of it. I like it, I love it, I want some more of it. I'd be good in the Baptist hymnal right there. I want some more of it. Once you get a taste of it, I'll never be satisfied with life this side of heaven, this side of God's glory. Listen, Moses comes in chapter 33 and he says, I want to see your glory. You ever pray that? Well, if that is your heart, nine chapters earlier in chapter 24, God kept calling him to come up. Before you ever pray, God, show me your glory. God has already been calling you Climb a little higher. Draw a little nearer. Let's stop. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.